Welcome to Sleepy Head Stories today. We love to read books, be silly, and play. Me and my mommy are here every week to read you great stories that all are unique. Join us at bedtime, or bath time, or breakfast. We promise it's better than a trip to the dentist. Welcome to Sleepyhead Stories. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Sleepyhead Stories. So this week we are going to finish the story of The Little Prince. I want to thank you all for listening these past few weeks to one of our favorite books here in our home. I know there are times when the book may be a little bit hard to understand, especially for some of our younger listeners, but at the end of this episode, and it is a long one to finish the book, I try to explain it for you to maybe understand a bit better, and also I can suggest watching uh, the movies or little cartoons about the little prince it's also a big help to understand because this is a really great book and the book is all about having an open mind and an open imagination and asking questions and so sometimes we you know get a little bit lost in what the actual meaning is but at the end of the day just keep in mind it's all about having an open mind and asking questions about the world All right, so after this, we'll get right into the final part of The Little Prince. Hang in there. The seventh planet, then, was Earth. The Earth is not just another planet. It contains 111 kings, including, of course, the African kings. 7,000 geographers, 900,000 businessmen, 7.5 million drunkards, 311 million vain men, in other words, about 2 billion grown-ups. To give you a notion of the Earth's dimensions, I can tell you that before the invention of electricity, it was necessary to maintain over the whole of six continents a veritable army of 462,511 lamplighters. Seen from a distance, this made a splendid effect. The movement of this army were ordered like those of a ballet. First came the turn of the lamplighters of New Zealand and Australia. Then these, having lit their street lamps, would go home to sleep. Next, it would be the turn of the lamplighters of China and Siberia to perform their steps in the lamplighters' ballet. And then they too would vanish into the wings. Then came the turn of the lamplighters of Russia and India. Then those of Africa and Europe. Then those of South America and North America. And they never missed their cues for their appearances on stage. It was awe-inspiring. Only the lamplighter of the single street lamp at the North Pole and his colleague of the single street lamp at the South Pole led carefree, idle lives. They worked twice a year. Trying to be witty leads to lying, more or less. 
What I just told you about the lamplighters isn't completely true, and I risk giving a false idea of our planet to those who don't know it. Men occupy very little space on Earth. If the two billion inhabitants of the globe were to stand close together, as they might for some big public event, they would easily fit into a city block that was 20 miles long and 20 miles wide. If you could crowd all of humanity onto the smallest Pacific island, you would be able to. Grown-ups, of course, won't believe you. They're convinced that they take up much more room. They consider themselves as important as the baobabs. So, you should advise them to make their own calculations. They love numbers, and they'll enjoy it. But don't waste your time on this extra task. It's unnecessary. Trust me. So, once he reached Earth the little prince was quite surprised not to see anyone. He was beginning to fear he had come to the wrong planet when a moon-colored loop uncoiled in the sand. Good evening, the little prince said, just in case. Good evening, said the snake. What planet have I landed on? asked the little prince. On planet Earth, in Africa, the snake replied. Ah, are there no people on planet Earth? It's the desert here. There are no people in the desert. Earth is very big, said the snake. The prince sat down on a rock and looked up into the sky. I wonder, he said, if the stars are lit up so that each of us can find his own someday, then look, that's my planet. It's just overhead, but it's so far away. It's lovely, said the snake. What have you come to Earth for? Uh, I'm having difficulties with a flower, the little prince said. Ah, said the snake, and they were both silent. Where are the people? The little prince finally resumed the conversation. It's a little lonely in the desert. It's also lonely with people, said the snake. The little prince looked at the snake for a long time. You're a funny creature, he said at last. No thicker than a finger. But I'm more powerful than a king's finger, the snake said. The little prince smiled. You're not very powerful. You don't even have feet. You couldn't travel that far. I can take you further than a ship, the snake said. He coiled around the little prince's ankle like a golden bracelet. Anyone I touch, I send back to the land from which he came, the snake went on. But you're innocent. And you come from a star. The little prince made no reply. I feel sorry for you being so weak on this granite earth, said the snake. I can help you someday if you grow too homesick for your planet. I can... Oh, I understand just what you mean, said the little prince. 
But why do you always speak in riddles? I solve them, said the snake, and they were both silent. The little prince crossed the desert and encountered only one flower, a flower with three petals, a flower of no conscience. Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the flower. Where are the people? The little prince inquired politely. The flower had one day seen a caravan passing. People, there are six or seven of them, I believe, in existence. I caught sight of them years ago, but you never know where to find them. The wind blows them away. They have no roots, which hampers them a good deal. Goodbye, said the little prince. Goodbye, said the flower. The little prince climbed a high mountain. The only mountains he had ever known were the three volcanoes which came up to his knee, and he used the extinct volcano as a footstool. From a mountain as high as this one, he said to himself, I'll get a view of the whole planet and I'll see the people on it. But he saw nothing but rocky peaks as sharp as needles. Hello, he said, just in case. Hello, 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 the echo answered. Who are you? the little prince asked. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? the echo answered. Let's be friends. I'm lonely, he said. I'm lonely, I'm lonely, I'm lonely, the echo answered. What a peculiar planet, he thought. It's all dry and sharp and hard, and people here have no imagination. They repeat whatever you say to them. Where I live, I had a flower. She always spoke first. But so it happened that the little prince, having walked a long time through the sand and rocks and snow, finally discovered a road. And all roads go to somewhere where there are people. Good morning, he said. It was a blossoming rose garden. Good morning, said the roses. The little prince gazed at them. All of them looked like his flower. Who are you? he asked, astounded. We're roses, the roses said. Ah, said the little prince, and he felt very unhappy. His flower had told him she was the only one of her kind in the whole universe, and here were 5,000 of them, all just alike, in just one garden. Ah, she would be very annoyed, he said to himself, if she saw this. She would cough terribly and pretend to be dying to avoid being laughed at. And I'd have to pretend to be nursing her otherwise. She'd really let herself die in order to humiliate me. And then he said to himself, I thought I was rich because I had just one flower. And all I own is an ordinary rose. That and my three volcanoes, which come up to my knee one of which may be permanently extinct. It doesn't make me much of a prince. And he laid down in the grass and wept. 
It was then that the fox appeared. Good morning, said the fox. Good morning, said the little prince, politely, though he turned around and saw nothing. I'm over here, the voice said, under the apple tree. Who are you? the little prince asked. You're very pretty. I'm a fox, said the fox. Come and play with me, the little prince proposed. I'm feeling so sad. I can't play with you, the fox said. I'm not tamed. Ah, excuse me, said the little prince, but upon reflection he added, What does tamed mean? You're not from around here, the fox said. What are you looking for? I'm looking for people, said the little prince. What does tamed mean? People, said the fox, have guns and they hunt. It's quite troublesome. And they also raise chickens. That's the only interesting thing about them. Are you looking for chickens? No, said the little prince. I'm looking for friends. What does tamed mean? It's something that's been too often neglected. It means to create ties. To create ties. That's right, the fox said. For me, you're only a little boy that's just like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you, and you have no need of me either. For you, I'm only a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, we'll need each other. You'll be the only boy in the world for me, and I'll be the only fox in the world for you. I'm beginning to understand, the little prince replied. There's a flower. I think she's tamed me. Possibly, said the fox. On earth, one sees all kinds of things. Oh, this isn't on earth, said the little prince. The fox seemed quite intrigued. On another planet? Yes. Are there hunters on that planet? No. Now that's interesting. And chickens? No. Nothing's perfect, sighed the fox, but he returned to his idea. My life is monotonous. I hunt chickens and people hunt me. All chickens are just alike and all men are just alike. So I'm rather bored. But if you tame me, my life will be filled with sunshine. I'll know the sound of footsteps that will be different from all the rest. Other footsteps send me back underground. But yours will call me out of my burrow like music. And then look, you see the wheat over there in the fields? I don't eat bread. For me, wheat is of no use whatsoever. Wheat fields say nothing to me, which is sad. But you have hair the color of gold. So it will be wonderful once you've tamed me. The wheat, which is golden, will remind me of you. And I'll love the sound of the wind in the wheat. The fox fell silent and stared at the little prince for a long while. Please, tame me, he said. I'd like to, the little prince replied, but I haven't much time. I have friends to find and so many things to learn. The only things you'll learn are the things you tame, said the fox. People haven't time to learn anything. They buy things ready-made in stores. But since there are no stores where you can buy friends, people no longer have friends. 
If you want a friend, tame me. What do I have to do? asked the little prince. You have to be very patient, the fox answered. First, you'll sit down a little ways away from me over there in the grass. I'll watch you out of the corner of my eye and you won't say anything. Language is the source of misunderstandings. But day by day, you'll be able to sit a little closer. The next day, the little prince returned. It would have been better to return home at the same time, the fox said. For instance, if you come at four in the afternoon, I'll begin to be happy by three. The closer it gets to four, the happier I'll feel. By four, I'll be all excited and worried. I'll discover what it costs to be happy. But if you come at any old time, I'll never know when I should prepare my heart. There must be rights. What's a right? asked the little prince. That's another thing that's been too often neglected, said the fox. It's the fact that one day is different from other days, one hour from other hours. My hunters, for example, have a right. They dance with the village girls on Thursdays. So on Thursday is a wonderful day. I can take a stroll all the way to the vineyards. If the hunters dance whenever they chose, the days would be all just like, I don't know, and, and have no holiday at all. That's how the little prince wound up taming the fox. And when the time to leave was near, he said, Ah, I shall weep, the fox said. It's your own fault, the little prince said. I never wanted to do you any harm, but you insisted that I tame you. Yes, of course, the fox said. But you're going to weep, said the little prince. Yes, of course, the fox said. Then you get nothing out of it. I get something, the fox said, because of the color of the wheat. And then he added, go look at the roses again. You'll understand that yours is the only rose in the world. Then come back to say goodbye, and I'll make you the gift of a secret. Before the little prince left to go home for the day, he went over to look at the roses again. You're not at all like my rose. You're nothing at all yet, he told them. No one has tamed you, and you have tamed no one. You're the way my fox was. He was just a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But I've made him my friend and now he's the only fox in the world. And the roses were humbled. You're lovely, but you're empty, he went on. One couldn't die for you. Of course, an ordinary passerby would think my rose looked just like you. But my rose, all on her own, is more important than all of you together, since she's the only one I've watered. Since she's the one I put under glass. Since she's the one I sheltered behind a screen. Since she's the one for whom I killed the caterpillars, except for the two or three butterflies. She's the one I listened to all the time when she complained, or when she boasted, or even sometimes when she said nothing at all. She's my rose. And he went back to the fox. Goodbye, 
he said. Goodbye, said the fox. Here is my secret. It's quite simple. One sees clearly only with the heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes, the little prince repeated in order to remember. It's the time you spend on your rose that makes your rose so important. It's the time I spent on my rose, the little prince repeated in order to remember. People have forgotten this truth, the fox said, but you mustn't forget it. You become responsible forever for what you've tamed. You're responsible for your rose. I'm responsible for my rose, the little prince repeated in order to remember. Good morning, said the little prince. Good morning, said the railway switchman. What is it you do here, asked the little prince. I sort the travelers into bundles of a thousand, the switchman said. I dispatch the trains that carry them, sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left. And a brightly lit express train, roaring thunder, shook the switchman's cabin. What a hurry they're in, said the little prince. What are they looking for? Not even the engineer on the locomotives knows, the switchman said. And another brightly lit express train thundered by in the opposite direction. Are they coming back already, asked the little prince. It's not the same ones, the switchman said. It's an exchange. They weren't satisfied where they were, asked the little prince. No one is ever satisfied where he is, the switchman said. And a third brightly lit express train thundered past. Are they chasing the first travelers, asked the little prince. They're not chasing anything, the switchman said. They're sleeping in there, or else they're yawning. Only the children are passing their noses against the window panes. Only the children know what they're looking for, said the little prince. They spend their time on a rag doll, and it becomes very important. And if it's taken away from them, they cry. They're lucky, the switchman said. Good morning said the little prince. Good morning, said the sales clerk. This was a sales clerk who sold pills invented to quench thirst. Swallow one a week and you'll no longer feel any need to drink. Why do you sell these pills? They save so much time, said the sales clerk. Experts have calculated that you can save 53 minutes a week. And what do you do with those 53 minutes? whatever you like. If I had 53 minutes to spend as I liked, the little prince said to himself, I'd walk very slowly toward a water fountain. It was now the eighth day since my crash landing in the desert, and I'd listened to the story about the sales clerk as I was drinking the last drop of my water supply. Ah, I said to the little prince, your memories are very pleasant, but I haven't yet repaired my plane. 
I have nothing left to drink, and I too would be glad to walk very slowly toward a water fountain. My friend the fox told me, Little fellow, this has nothing to do with the fox. Why? Because we're going to die of thirst. The little prince didn't follow my reasoning and answered me, It's good to have had a friend, even if you're going to die. Myself, I'm very glad to have had a fox for a friend. He doesn't realize the danger, I said to myself. He's never hungry or thirsty. A little sunlight is enough for him. But the little prince looked at me and answered my thought. I'm thirsty too. Let's find a well. I made an exasperated gesture. It is absurd looking for a well at a random in the vastness of the desert. But even so, we started walking. When we had walked for several hours in silence, night fell and the stars began to appear. I noticed them as in a dream. Being somewhat feverish on account of my thirst, the little prince's words danced in my memory. So you're thirsty too? I asked. But he didn't answer my question. He merely said to me, water can also be good for your heart. I didn't understand his answer, but I said nothing. I knew by this time that there was no questioning him. He was tired. He sat down. I sat down next to him. And after a silence, he spoke again. The stars are beautiful because of a flower you don't see. I answered, yes, of course. And without speaking another word, I stared at the ridges of the sand in the moonlight. And the desert is beautiful, the little prince added. And it was true. I always loved the desert. You sit down on sand on a dune, you see nothing, you hear nothing, and yet something shines and something sings in that silence. What makes the desert beautiful, the little prince said, is that it hides a well somewhere. I was surprised by suddenly understanding that mysterious radiance in the sand. When I was a little boy, I lived in an old house and there was a legend that a treasure was buried in there somewhere. Of course, no one was ever able to find the treasure. Perhaps no one even searched, but it cast a spell over the whole house. My house hid a secret in the depths of its heart. Yes, I said to the little prince, whether it's a house or the stars or the desert, what makes them beautiful is invisible. I'm glad, he said, you agree with my fox. As the little prince was falling asleep, I picked him up in my arms and started walking again. I was moved. It was as if I was carrying a fragile treasure. It actually seemed to me there was nothing more fragile on earth but the light of the moon. I gazed at the pale forehead of those closed eyes, those locks of hair trembling in the wind, and I said to myself, what am I looking at? For. What am I looking at? It's only a shell. What's most important is invisible. 
As his lips parted in a half smile, I said to myself again, what moves me so deeply about this sleeping little prince in his loyalty is his loyalty to a flower. The image of a rose shining within him like the flame within a lamp, even when he's asleep. And I realized he was even more fragile than I had thought. Lamps must be protected. A gust of wind can blow them out. And walking on like that, I found the well in the middle of the desert at daybreak. The little prince said, People start out in express trains, but they no longer know what they're looking for. They get all excited and rush around in circles. And he added, it's not worth the trouble. The well we had come to was not at all like the wells of the Sahara. The wells of the Sahara are no more than holes dug in the sand. This one looked more like a village well. But there was no village here, and I thought I was dreaming. It's strange, I said to the little prince. Everything is ready, the pulley, the bucket, and the rope. He laughed, grasped the rope, and set the pulley working. And the pulley groaned, and the way an old weather vane groans when the wind has been asleep a long time. You hear that, said the little prince. We've awakened this well, and it's singing. I didn't want him to tire himself out. Let me do that, I said to him. It's too heavy for you. Slowly, I hoisted the bucket to the edge of the well. I set it down with great care. The song of the pulley continued in my ears, and I saw the sun glisten on the still trembling water. I am thirsty for that water, said the little prince. Let me drink some. And I understood what he'd been looking for. I raised the bucket up to his lips. He drank, eyes closed. It was as sweet as a feast. That water was more than merely a drink. It was born of our walk beneath the stars, of the song of the pulley, of the effort of my arms. It did the good heart, the heart good, like a present. When I was a little boy, the Christmas tree lights, the music of midnight mass, the tenderness of people's smiles made up. It made in the same way the whole radiance of the Christmas present I received. People where you live, the little prince said, grow 5,000 roses in one garden, yet they don't find what they're looking for. They don't find it, I answered. And yet what they're looking for could be found in a single rose or a little water. Of course, I answered. And the little prince added, but eyes are blind. You have to look with the heart. I had drunk the water. I could breathe easy now. The sand at daybreak is honey colored and the color was making me happy too. Why then did I also feel so sad? You must keep your promise, said the little prince, sitting up against beside me. What promise? You know, a muzzle for my sheep. I'm responsible for this flower. I took my drawings out of my pocket. 
The little prince glanced at them and laughed as he said, Your baobabs look more like cabbages. Oh, I have been so proud of my baobabs. Your fox, his ears, look more like horns. They're too long. And he laughed again. You're being unfair, my little prince, I said. I never knew how to draw anything but boas from the inside and boas from the outside. Oh, that'll be all right, he said. Children understand. So then I drew a muzzle, and with a heavy heart, I handed it to him. You've made plans I don't know about. But he didn't answer. He said, you know, my fall to earth, tomorrow will be the first anniversary. Then, after a silence, he continued, I landed very near here. And he blushed. Once again, without understanding why, I felt a strange grief. However, a question occurred to me. Then it wasn't by accident that on the morning I met you eight days ago, you were walking that way, all alone, a thousand miles from any inhabited reason. Were you returning to the place where you fell to earth? The little prince blushed again. And I added, hesitantly, perhaps on account of the anniversary? The little prince blushed once more. He never answered questions. But when someone blushes, doesn't that mean yes? Ah, I said to the little prince, I'm afraid. But he answered, you must go to work now. You must get back to your engine. I'll wait here. Come back tomorrow night. But I wasn't reassured. I remembered the fox. You risk tears if you let yourself be tamed. Beside the well, there was a ruin, an old stone wall. When I came back from my work the next evening, I caught sight of the little prince from a distance. He was sitting on top of the wall, legs dangling, and I heard him talking. Don't you remember, he was saying. This isn't exactly the place, another voice must have answered him then, for he replied, Oh yes, it's the right day, but it isn't the right place. I continued walking toward the wall. I could see neither nor hear anyone, yet the little prince answered again. Of course, you'll see where my tracks begin on the sand. Just wait for me there. I'll be there tonight. I was 20 yards from the wall and still saw no one. The little prince said after a silence, Your poison is good? You sure it won't make me suffer long? I stopped short, my heart pounding, but I still didn't understand. Now go away the little prince said. I want to get down from here. Then I looked down toward the foot of the wall and gave a great start. There, coiled in front of the little prince, was one of those yellow snakes that can kill you in 30 seconds. As I dug into my pocket for my revolver, I stepped back. But at the noise I made, the snake flowed over the sand like a trickling fountain and without even hurrying slipped away between the stones with a faint metallic sound. 
I reached the wall just in time to catch my little prince's arms, his face white as snow. What's going on here? You're talking to snakes now? I had loosened the yellow scarf he always wore. I had moistened his temples and made him drink some water. And now I didn't dare ask him anything more. He gazed at me with a serious expression and put his arms around my neck. I felt his heart beating like a dying bird's when it's been shot. And he said to me, I'm glad you found what was the matter with your engine. Now you'll be able to fly again. How did you know? I was just coming to tell him that I had been successful beyond all hope. He didn't answer my question. All he said was, I'm leaving too today. And then sadly, it's much further. It's much more difficult. I realized something extraordinary was happening. I was holding him in my arms like a little child, yet it seemed to me that he was dropping headlong into an abyss and I could do nothing to hold him back. His expression was very serious now, lost and remote. I have your sheep and I have a crate for it and I have the muzzle and he smiled sadly. I waited a long time. I could feel that he was reviving a little. Little fellow, you were frightened. Of course he was frightened. But he laughed a little. I'll be much more than frightened tonight. Once again, I felt chilled by the sense of something irreparable. And I realized I couldn't bear the thought of never hearing that laugh again. For me, it was like a spring of fresh water in the desert. Little fellow, I want to hear you laugh again. But he said to me, Tonight, it'll be a year. My star will be just above the place where I fell last year. Little fellow, it's a bad dream, isn't it? All this conversation with the snake and the meeting place and the star. But he didn't answer my question. All he said was, The important thing is that what can be seen and can't be seen. Of, of course, it's the same as for the flower. If you love a flower that lives on a star, then it's good at night to look up at the sky. All the stars are blossoming. Of course. It's the same for water. The water you gave me to drink was like music on account of the pulley and the rope. You remember? It was good. Of course. At night, you'll look up at the stars. It's too small where I live for me to show you where my star is. It's better that way. My star will be one of the stars for you. So you, it'll be like looking at all of them. They'll all be your friends. And besides, I have a present for you. And he laughed again. Ah, little fellow, little fellow. I love hearing that laugh. That'll be my present. Just that. It'll be the same as for the water. What do you mean? Let me explain. People have stars, but they aren't the same. For travel travelers, the stars are guides. For other people, they're nothing but tiny lights. And for still others, for scholars, they're problems. 
For businessmen, they were gold, but all those stars are silent stars. You, though, you'll have stars like nobody else. What do you mean? When you look up at night, since I'll be living on one of them, since I'll be laughing on one of them, for you, it'll be as if the stars are laughing. You'll have stars that can laugh. And he laughed again. And when you're consoled, everyone eventually is consoled, you'll be glad you've known me. You'll always be my friend. You'll feel like laughing with me, and you'll open your windows sometimes just for the fun of it, and your friends will be amazed to see you laughing while you're looking up at the sky. And then you'll tell them, yes, it's the stars. They always make me laugh. And they'll think you're crazy. It'll be a nasty trick I played on you. And he laughed again. And it'll be as if I'd given you, instead of stars, a lot of tiny bells that you know how to laugh with. And he laughed again. And then he grew more serious once more. Tonight, you know, don't come. I won't leave you. It'll look as if I'm suffering. It'll look a little as if I'm dying. It'll look that way. Don't come to see that. It's not worth the trouble. I won't leave you. But he was anxious. I'm telling you this on account of the snake. He mustn't bite you. Snakes are nasty sometimes. They bite just for fun. I won't leave you, I said. But something reassured him. It's true, they don't have enough poison for a second bite. That night, I didn't see him leave. He got away without making a sound. When I managed to catch up with him, he was walking fast with determination. And all he said was, Ah, you're here. And he took my hand, but he was still anxious. You were wrong to come. You'll suffer. I'll look as if I'm dead, and that won't be true. I said nothing. You understand? It's too far. I can't take this body with me. It's too heavy. I said nothing. But it'll be like an old abandoned shell on the beach. There's nothing sad about an old shell. I said nothing. He was a little disheartened now, but he made one more effort. It'll be nice, you know. I'll be looking at the stars too. All the stars will be wells with the rusty pulley. All the stars will pour out water for me to drink. I said nothing. And it'll be fun. You'll have 500 million little bells and I'll have 500 million springs of fresh water. And he said, too, nothing, because he was weeping. Here's the place. Let me go alone. And he sat down because he was frightened. And then he said, you know, my flower, I'm responsible for her. And she's weak and so naive. She has four ridiculous thorns to defend herself against the world. 
I sat down too because I was unable to stand any longer. He said, There, that's all. He hesitated a little longer. Then he stood up. He took a step. I couldn't move. There was nothing but a yellow flash close to his ankle. He remained motionless for an instant. He didn't cry out. He fell gently the way a tree falls. There wasn't even a sound because of the sand. And now, of course, it's been six years already. I've never told this story before. The friends who saw me again were very glad to see me alive. I was sad, but I told them it's fatigue. Now I'm somewhat consoled, that is, not entirely, but I know he did get back to his planet because at daybreak I didn't find his body. It wasn't such a heavy body. And at night I love listening to the stars. It's like 500 million little bells. But something extraordinary has happened. When I drew the muzzle for the little prince, I forgot to put it a leather strap. He could have never fastened it on his sheep. And then I wonder, what happened there on his planet? Maybe the sheep has eaten the flower. Sometimes I tell myself, of course not. The little prince puts his flower under glass and he keeps close eye over his sheep. And then I'm happy and all the stars laugh sweetly. Sometimes I tell myself, Anyone might be distracted once in a while, and that's all it takes. One night he forgot to put her under glass, or else the sheep got out without making any noise during the night. Then the bells are changed into tears. It's all a great mystery. For you, who love the little prince too, as for me, nothing in the universe can be the same if somewhere... No one knows where. A sheep we never saw has or has not eaten a rose. Look up at the sky. Ask yourself, has the sheep eaten the flower or not? And you'll see how everything changes. And not all grown-ups will ever understand how such a thing could be so important. The End So guys, we did it. We finished The Little Prince. I think this is the longest, biggest book we've ever finished. And there's a lot to talk about with this book. And I want to just make it a point to say that if there's parts of the book that you don't understand or you couldn't really follow along with, that's very normal. This is a book that is studied by adults and students all over the world. That's why it's so beloved, because it makes you think a lot, and that's the whole point of the book. So I'm going to break it down for you guys a little bit, just really uh, briefly, so maybe it'll help you with some of the questions you have about the book, okay? First off, we're going to talk about the whole point of the book as a whole, and what the book's point is, if you want to, it has a point is the whole entire book represents something called open-mindedness. 
in particular, how children have very open minds. And the little prince himself is a wanderer, and he loves to ask questions no matter how strange or difficult they are. And he loves to engage with the invisible, with things that are intangible that you can touch, but more with your brain, with your mind. And he loves the secrets and the questions of the universe. That's who the little prince is. And so um, the book basically talks about how having this type of inquisitiveness, the big word, or being a child or a person who loves asking questions is really the key to understanding happiness. So if we all thought more like the little prince, we would all be much more happier if we all had an open mind like him. It's the overall theme of the whole book, okay? And the, in the book, it goes into a little bit like the dangers of being narrow-minded. So the opposite of having an open mind and asking questions is having a narrow mind, which means you never ask any questions and you just do what you're supposed to do and you never look up. And we see a lot of this from all the different adults that he meets on the different planets. Uh, we also see an example of that when the Turkish astronomer, nobody takes him seriously because he wears funny clothes, but then as soon as he changes into a suit and tries to explain his discoveries of a new asteroid, then everybody pays attention to him. So that's an example of being narrow-minded, and the book talks about how mostly narrow-mindedness happens with adults and um quick judgments you know when people meet someone and they quickly judge them they don't even really know them that's what that's all about okay and for the most part the little prince um says that the narrow-mindedness is for adults but he himself there's a couple of instances where even the little prince falls victim to narrow-mindedness an example of that is when he is standing on the mountain screaming to the people of earth and it's his echo but he doesn't realize that it's it's his echo talking back to him and he thinks what's wrong with the people of the earth they're so strange they just repeat whatever you say but um obviously we know that was just his echo he didn't realize it but he thought right away the people of the earth are so strange that's an example of even the little prince being quick to pass judgment on people when he doesn't really know them or understand them okay and there's other uh, parts of the book that uh, we could talk about how he gains enlightenment the more he explores. So the more planets he goes to and the more people he meets and the more questions he asks, he gains a higher and higher spiritual understanding or deeper understanding of things, or you can call that enlightenment, the more he asks questions. So it's a good thing to ask questions, right guys? Um, it talks about the importance of responsibility, which in the little princes is his planet and tending to the baobabs and the bad seeds, tending to the rose. He needed the sheep to bring back the drawing of the sheep because he needed the sheep to help him because it was such a big responsibility tending to his planet and his rose and how sometimes that responsibility is too much. Responsibilities can be hard and that's why he leaves his planet for a while and basically takes a vacation through space. Um, but then how those responsibilities, when done right, it's 
what it connects us to other people or to the little prince to his rose and eventually in the end he wants to go back to his planet to the little to his rose to his little planet so it teaches the importance of responsibility it also teaches the importance of secrets and the mystery of secrets and and kind of riddles when he meets the snake the snake talks in a lot of riddles and is very mysterious um and this is mainly and sometimes even the little prince talks in riddles and what he says doesn't seem like a normal thing to say and this represents how here on planet earth especially um, we don't always have the answers for everything and everything is not, oh, doesn't always even have an answer. And that's just how life is. And so that's what that whole thing with the snake and everything is all about is how there's mysteries and we don't always have the answers and that's part of life. Um, and of course, when the narrator, who's the pilot, is telling the story and he's talking about the drawings that he's made as a child and even as an adult, when he draws for the little prince, that's representing how creative children's minds are and open-minded, again, versus the narrow-mindedness that happens to you as you grow up and become an adult where the adults can no longer see the boa constrictor that swallowed the elephant. They just look at the drawing and they see a hat. Um, so that those drawings are a big representation of children's open-mindedness. And... Um, Lastly, we'll talk quickly about the fox, um, the fox and the whole concept of taming that the fox explains to the little prince. This is what taming means. It means to create a tie with someone or something that's like, so it's more important to you than everything other thing out there and how important this is for everyone to have ties with your family, with your friends. This is important. This is what life is about. Otherwise, you wander around and nothing has meaning to you, like the hundreds of roses in a garden, but none of them are special to him because it's not his rose. Um, and how that's part of love is the taming or creating ties with people and how the adults that he meets on the other planets, like the businessman, the um, drunkard, the king, the vain man, none of them have any ties to anyone. They have no taming. They have no closeness relationships to anyone or anything and so they're kind of just in their own world oblivious to what's really going on because they have no ties so that's the importance of that okay and that I'm gonna leave it with there um at the end it can be to some people a little bit sad because but the little prince makes it you know important to say that I'm not dying I just this is how I could travel back through space it's the only way I can get back to my planet um, and again, this just represents the mysteries of life on earth and how things, nobody really knows the answers or why it works or how it works, but it just works. And the pilot knows that every time he looks at the stars, he either hears them laughing or hears them crying, which signifies his emotions of missing the little prince, remembering the good times and being sad that he's gone. And that's what that, all of that represents. So, um... I hope you enjoyed, guys. There's so much more that you could talk about. This book 
people take entire classes on just this book. So I just tried to make it, you know, really small there for you. Um, short little recap, but I hope you enjoyed it. It's a very special book. And there's a few versions of the movies out there. If you ever want to watch them, sometimes that makes it even easier to help you fully understand um, the book, especially for kids, if you watch the movies too. All right. We wish you the best day or the best night, and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye, guys.